Donald Trump opts to keep his trial in Fulton County. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. On today's episode, we'll start with a look into the likely reasons that Donald Trump and his legal team have decided against moving his trial to federal court. I'm AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. The government shutdown is closer than ever, and far-right Republicans continue to block progress on even a short-term spending measure. What leadership in Washington is doing to try to reach an agreement. I'm Patricia Murphy. How the effect of a looming shutdown has reached even Plains, Georgia, where plans to celebrate President Jimmy Carter's 99th birthday are being changed. And I'm Bill Nygut. The shutdown may have an impact on the celebration of Jimmy Carter's birthday, but it hasn't stopped dozens of celebrities and many others who've been sending Carter well wishes for a birthday many of us thought was out of reach when he decided to stop life-saving medical care. Jane Fonda was among them. I love you, Jimmy Carter. Happy birthday. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. First, though, some breaking news. Senator Dianne Feinstein has passed away at the age of 90. Uh, Patricia, you covered the California Democrat for years. You even worked with her when you were a Senate aide in Washington. Iconic is one word that comes to mind. Yeah, uh, Senator Feinstein, I think the reason that people were so upset that Senator Feinstein um, came back to the Senate over the summer in such physical decline is because she was such a giant in the Senate when she was at her prime, um, which even wasn't that long ago um, when she was elected to the Senate. There were just two women in the Senate in 1991. Um, she ran in 92 and won that seat. Um, she also uh, became the first woman to lead the Judiciary Committee. And she was just somebody who, when she walked into a room, she had a stature physically. She was very tall. Um, and then just uh, in terms of the experience she brought to the debate she was having, um, that people just stopped and looked at her and listened to her and waited to see, you know, what would Dianne Feinstein say? What what does Senator Feinstein want to do? So um, it's a huge loss to people. And I think if if they could go back in time, they wish that sh- they hope that she will be remembered at her prime instead of um, in her recent decline. Tia? Yeah, I was going to say, yes, there has been an obvious physical and a lot of people who cover Feinstein will say mental decline. Um, She had some health setbacks. Again, she was 90 years old. But I think it should not be lost on us that she literally worked until the last day. She voted on the Senate floor Thursday morning. And then for us to find out this morning, Friday, that she had passed away um, is a big blow. But like Patricia said, no, she hadn't been the most prominent, definitely not the most vocal senator in recent months. And again, there had been criticism um, that perhaps she was no longer effective. We knew she wasn't going to run for another term. But her her resume, her biography, she is a trailblazer. And Bill Feinstein's death puts California Governor Gavin Newsom under intense pressure to quickly name a replacement as this budget standoff continues. Yeah, um, but but I wasn't thinking as much about the politics of the replacement this morning. I, I was thinking about the ephemeral nature, not just of life, but in many ways of politics themselves. 
Um, we know that for months and months, people have debated whether Diane Feinstein should have stepped down, should have retired because she was in such ill health. Right up until the very end, people were talking about that. But as Tia points out, she voted on Thursday and now she's gone. And the politics of whether she should have retired or not uh, are now blowing in the wind. She is no longer with us. In a statement, Gavin Newsom called her, called Diane Feinstein many things, a powerful, trailblazing U.S. senator, an early voice for gun control, a leader in times of tragedy and chaos, a dear friend, a lifelong mentor, and a role model, not only for me, but to my wife and daughters, for what a powerful, effective leader looks like. She was a giant. With that, let's take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Let's dive right in. Donald Trump has decided against an effort to move his election interference trial to federal court. His attorneys filed notice that Donald Trump is confident he'll be treated fairly in a trial held in Fulton County Superior Court. Patricia, this decision took many, many people, including many legal analysts, completely by surprise, given that everyone thought he would join the other defendants trying to remove the case to federal court. And even his attorney had filed a notice a few weeks ago saying, we may file this this removal notice. Yeah, and I think it came as a surprise mostly because we have fully expected Donald Trump at every juncture to be filing motions, pushing um, to require answers, pushing to essentially delay any forward movement on this trial. So anything that could be in question would be in question. Anything that could be protested would be protested. And I think that there was an assumption that if he did move this to federal court, um, it could favorably impact his, uh, certainly the selection of the jury who would be available to him um, to sit for this trial. So his decision not to do that seemed like a bit of a capitulation. We don't know exactly why he did it. Um, But uh, to me, the biggest effect of this is that it's most likely if this does go to trial, um, it will be televised because it's in state court. State court, uh, state law allows for that. And it's just a level of transparency that would eat that we even saw in the very first stages of this trial as Judge McBurney was um, receiving the indictments uh, and it was completely broadcast on television. It's the first time 
anybody, so many people have seen those motions and those types of machinations um, to imagine the level of uh, intense interest in this and the fact that it might be available on um, live television is just hard to wrap your head around. But I think um, many people, including reporters, are very glad of the possibility. Yeah. I mean, Bill, look, this came a couple of weeks after Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, had tried and failed in his bid to move his case to federal court. As Patricia said, this is this almost this almost you know locks in the, the the chance that this will be a televised trial for all to see. Unlike the other ongoing indictments, the I, ongoing I think, legal problems that Trump faces. I, I apologize for jumping in. I I, I think um, clearly um, that uh, Trump's attorneys uh, um, uh, watched Mark Meadow try to move his case to federal court, saw him get up on the witness stand, testify in such a way that he may have done his case more harm than good, and then lose uh, the battle. Uh, federal Judge Steve Jones said, nope, you didn't make the case. You're going to stay in Fulton County Superior Court. And the last thing in the world that I think Trump and his attorneys wanted was the possibility that he himself would have to testify uh, in an effort to have the case moved to federal court. And certainly they would want to do anything they could to avoid that at this stage. Yeah, Tia, exactly right. I mean, one, one issue that legal experts have said is that, look, he would have to preview his defense, you know, an emotion that he's likely to, to, to lose. Um, there's also the, the, the consideration that, you know, his, his legal team seems very uh, confident in Judge McAfee, who is a 34-year-old judge with a few months on the bench, uh, a Governor Kemp appointee, um, uh, rather than risking, uh, you know, drawing a judge that might not be seen as, as favorable uh, in, the, in federal court. And of course, there's the other implications of staying in Fulton County Court not only means that it's likely to be televised, but it means you're keeping a Fulton County jury pool rather than a, a broader federal jury pool pulled from about 10 counties in Metro Atlanta. Well, I think that's a point that the point that you raise about strategy. We know that Trump has hired a really good attorney, and I think it's pretty clear that these efforts to move the cases to federal court weren't going well. But I think there's a strategy somewhere. I don't know exactly what it is, but, you know, I think they're probably going to try some other things. I don't think they're just the fact that this is something they're no longer trying to move it to federal court. I think that indicates that they've now um, come up with, you know, maybe a different a different playbook, so to speak, and it'll be interesting to see where this unfolds. But some things they won't get around, like the cameras in the courtroom. Um, but again, I think they they might try something else. Yeah, and and you know the cameras in the courtroom might be a consideration. He might want to play to the cameras, Bill. But I I, I texted a few uh, legal experts, attorneys who know Steve very well, who of course said Steve Sadow is thinking everything through. Um, but one other consideration is it costs a lot of money to try to remove it to federal court. There are cost considerations. Trump, of course, has been raising lots of money uh, to help float these legal bills. But one legal expert said, hey, it might just boil down to the cost of pursuing this might be too expensive. 
Yeah, there have been some reports uh, as as recently as this morning that that Trump's endless bankroll, even though much of this money is coming from contributions uh, that he has uh, solicited uh, for his legal defense, might be running a little thin, and that he's going to have to be a little bit more careful about how many f- uh, suits he decides he wants to be involved with moving forward. Yeah, uh, Patricia, one thing that Anthony Michael Christ tweeted, he is a Georgia state law uh, university law school, a constitutional expert who said, I think judge McAfee has demonstrated he's even killed and reasonable. Nothing suggests to me that he is the reason why, uh, you know, this, this, uh, they've, they've abandoned this motion. Um, I think reality is you're going to have a hard time at, in an ed- evidentiary motions hearing without a witness and the motion doesn't stop the state proceedings. So there is definitely some confidence in how judge McAfee has handled these early, uh, these early motions, very confident, uh, very straight to the point, you know, and he's delivered, he's, he's issued motions quicker than many folks have expected. I think that with so little time on the bench, it's really been something to watch Judge McAfee operate under this amount of scrutiny, um, this amount of, uh, I think, skepticism on both sides for any judge. And he's equipped himself very well. And people on both sides of this who have spoken with really do feel that way. I think particularly with this motion to move to federal court, the reality is that President Trump was playing two roles at that time. He was both the president of the United States um, as well as a candidate. And um, the federal court and the decision not to move it to federal court earlier, um, particularly with Mark Meadows, was saying that this was very clearly at campaign activity. Um, you did not make the case that you were working as a federal official. And because he was working in that capacity for the president, um, I think you could infer from that, if you were trying to decide which motions to really dig in on, that this um, might not be the one to really go there with. Here's the quote from Anthony Michael Christ, the Georgia State law professor I was looking for. Quote, I think the bottom line is that without testimony at an evidentiary hearing, a removal motion is unlikely to prevail, and there's no benefit to putting Donald Trump on the stand. So I think that kind of boils down why he made the decision, but yet it was still a surprise. Meanwhile, guys, we are now two days after the last Republican debate. It doesn't seem like anyone's talking about it anymore at all. It seems like the world has moved on. Donald Trump, of course, was not there. But Bill, in so much of the after-debate analysis, it, including our own at the AJC, seemed like he was the big winner of that debate night by not showing up because it was just was a free-for-all. It was chaotic. It was messy. Legal expert, uh, political experts you talked to all came away with the same sort of sentiment that it was really hard to define a winner on that stage. Some people had better nights than others, but in the end, there was no kind of breakout moment. There was nothing that seems like we'll be talking about over the next few days, let alone today, <laughs> about this changing the dynamics of a race that Donald Trump still leads by yeah. a huge margin. Yeah, I mean, you know, there may have been lots of complaints about the fact that Donald Trump won't participate in uh, these debates. He has to show up. He has to tell people where he stands, that kind of criticism he's gotten. But you're right, Greg. Uh, he's the winner of this debate. The 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 back and forth, the arguing, as you described it, the chaotic scene on the stage, and you were one of just any number of journalists who were at the debate uh, calling it that, calling it a frenzy. Um, It's hard to imagine that anyone could have walked off that stage and walked into the arms of their campaign teams and been told, great job, you really made a breakthrough on this day. 
Okay, I'm going to completely disagree with both of y'all because I do think that Nikki Haley won that debate. And it's not a question of, is Nikki Haley going to be the next president? I don't think you have to achieve that level of confidence. But there is a competition right now among the second tier to be the top of the second tier. Who are the donors going to get behind? Who do voters think has a chance to even stay in this thing? If you are a never-Trumper voter on the Republican side, who could you support instead of Donald Trump? Um, And I think that mixing it up is actually important for some of these candidates. Somebody like Nikki Haley, somebody like Tim Scott, they have to prove to Republicans, um, particularly Republicans who want that kind of fight in a candidate, which is most Republicans, if you talk to them right now, they want somebody who who can mix it up and win a fight and, quote, be strong and, quote, stay tough. And I do think that Nikki Haley, when she um, was getting into it with Vivek Ramaswamy and said, every time I hear you speak, I feel dumber having heard what you said. That was a good line. Um, <laughs> it's just a great line. It was not canned. A lot of those other candidates came trotting out with their canned lines Donald, written on a scrap Donald, of paper. Yeah. She, it was, she so sincerely hates Vivek Ramaswamy and you could feel it. <laughs> And she followed up with a very detailed policy um, attack on Ramaswamy's position um, about uh, uh, China, about TikTok, about social media. Um, so I think she equipped herself very well. And I spoke with donors following that who are looking for somebody besides DeSantis to get behind and besides Trump. And they are liking Haley after these two debates more and more. Patricia, um, Charles Bullock, who is, uh, of course, political science professor, the legendary political science professor from the University of Georgia, uh, told me that he would agree with you. He thought former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley came out best, not only due to her aggressiveness, but she did better, uh, Chuck said, at answering questions posed. Um, and Karen Owen, who we also talked with uh, for an article in, in, in the AJC, she too thought that Nikki Haley did a pretty good job um, saying that DeSantis, Haley, and Tim Scott got more attention and addressed more issues and engaged in a back and forth that exposed each other's records. Those were the way they described it. On the other hand, Honor Gillespie from Emory University, who we all know and have a great respect for, uh, said to me, the only interesting thing I learned from this debate was that only Ron DeSantis has a Spanish translation <laughs> on his web- of his website. <laughs> By the way, we should note that is Bill Nygut's first article for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. He can do it. <laughs> He can do it all. Uh, Tia, I think the underlying dynamics there is the same, is that you know at this point, I was just talking to a, a senior Republican strategist shortly beco- before coming on air, and we both thought that after the first debate, there'd be some folks dropping out. Certainly at this point, the field would be winnowed. It hasn't. There's still a huge crowded field. There's seven people on the debate stage. Donald Trump wasn't one of them. Asa Hutchinson, who wasn't on it, has vowed to continue going on, even when the moderator asked the candidates which one of you should be voted off the island, uh, each of the seven candidates basically ignored her and no one said that any of the others should leave. And it still the underlying dynamics still remain the same. How can anyone consolidate the non-Donald Trump support if there's still seven other candidates, eight other candidates, nine other candidates in this race, and that Ron DeSantis is polling in the teens in states like Georgia? Yeah, I think we're not going to see a winnowing, I believe, until the third debate, which is going to be November 8th in Miami. Um, I think there are a lot of those people on the stage who are hanging on by just a hair, um, and they're hoping 
you know, right now their focus is to qualify for the third debate. And I think, again, I think that's when we'll see a winnowing. But back to this second debate, as you all know, I was busy Wednesday night with what was truly the most important thing going on in America, which was the Beyonce concert. But it really um, allowed me to consume the debate like as a regular person, which means not paying attention, really. And, um, you know, and, you know. I mean, seriously. And then the next day, I'm reading the news coverage. I'm looking at the highlights. And what I realized is I didn't miss a thing. Like, they were arguing and talking over each other. And the moderators were trying to, like, insert, you know, exact control. And it wasn't happening. And I missed the the Nikki Haley Haley Zinger against Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, I, my main takeaway, again, as a consumer, a non-political junkie way of consuming this debate was that I feel like we heard very little from Tim Scott. You know, like, again, as far as the post-debate analysis, the post-debate analysis, again, it seemed like Tim Scott still struggles to be anything more than like an afterthought. Um and to me, that's troubling because a lot of people felt he was the savior. Coming out of the debate, we immediately saw news reports that they're back to trying to draft Brian Kemp or Glenn Youngkin, which, again, tells you a lot about what Republican donors thought about that second debate. Yeah, there was one moment where Tim caught Tim Scott clashed with Nikki Haley. Of course, Nikki Haley appointed him to the U.S. Senate. They were longtime allies. And he was attacking her over a South Carolina gas tax. And she was basically like, bring it on. You want to go after me? I'm ready for it. And there was a little bit of uh, a clash between them. But you're right. He, he, he struggled a little bit to, to, to maintain the focus. He tried to come out edgier than he had in the first debate where he really was kind of receded to the back, backdrop. And I also thought it was interesting. Apparently, viewership really fell off between this first debate and second debate. So, again, there just wasn't the engagement. Um, Still 10 million people watch, which is no small potatoes, but um, compared to 13 million with the first debate. And to you compare that to the second debate in 2015, when there was a big wide open field, Donald Trump was at that debate and that it really felt like that nomination was up for grabs. That was 24 million people who watched that. Wow. So you compare the 10 million to 24 million, that pretty much gives you the level of interest in that debate. Um, although I think most of those people were also at the Beyonce concert. <laughs> Even Ron DeSantis <laughs> said if he were at home, he would not be watching this debate if he, if he flipped through it on TV. So that, that gives you a sense of uh, the lasting impact of debate number two. Just ahead, we're going to talk about the deadline for House Republicans to find a solution to their fight over a spending bill. It's coming very close. It's just two days away. Is there any progress? This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
and we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our colleagues here at the AJC are working around the clock to keep you informed on all the developments in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump. And now the AJC is putting all of our coverage into one place with the Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. You can sign up for free right now at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. It's all one word ajc.com slash indictment newsletter. And also, of course, listen to the award-winning Breakdown podcast, which has all the ins and outs, all the legal expertise on every development in the Donald Trump election interference trial here in Georgia. Well, Tia, hardline Republicans in the U.S. House are continuing to thwart efforts by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to reach a deal on even a short-term spending measure that would keep the federal government open past the Saturday night midnight deadline. McCarthy says he'll work through the weekend to find a solution to the deadlock, but time is running short, Tia. Yeah, and even we're recording this Friday morning. By the time this podcast starts being consumed, what I'm getting ready to say could be very moot um, because the House is voting on its stopgap funding legislation around lunchtime. It includes steep cuts to federal spending. It's going to include some of that border security um, language that hard right members want. And there is no guarantee it can pass because, again, there are moderates who think the cuts are too severe. And there are also some conservative Republicans who just on principle don't support um, continuing resolutions, these short term funding bills. So um, and even if it does pass, we know Democrats aren't going to like it in the House and definitely not in the Senate. So it doesn't get us closer to avoiding a shutdown. The Senate also today is taking procedural steps on its continuing resolution but the Senate procedures require things to move much slower unless you have unanimous consent. And again, we don't have that in the Senate. So even the Senate's continuing resolution probably won't get final passage until after the deadline of a shutdown. And still, the Senate continuing resolution, McCarthy says he won't bring it up in the House. So the two sides haven't started talking to each other yet. So it's not clear what the resolution is. That's why no matter what happens today, we still right now think it's very likely the government will shut down. Funding will run out at the end of the day on Saturday. Patricia, there's so many moving parts, but one thing we do know is Georgia's right in the middle of it all, right? You got at least three members of the Congress, in the, uh, Republican members, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Andrew Clyde, Mike Collins, who were closely watching. There's others, too, um, who could join the sort of far-right movement to to block the, uh, the, who already have joined, in some cases, this movement to block any sort of spending deal. Marjorie Taylor Greene remains at the center of everything, really, as one of uh, the one-time allies of Kevin McCarthy, who's broken with him. It's going to be really interesting to watch what happens. Yeah. And the those three that you mentioned are also Georgia's three newest Republicans, with the exception of um, Rich McCormick. So you have three very, um, very conservative uh, new 
newish members who were not around for any of these previous shutdowns. I think the result of those shutdowns is blazed in the memories of so many Republicans who are like, wow, that really did not work out for us the way we thought it was going to. Um, There almost seems to be an appetite. There's certainly a tolerance for a shutdown on the Republican side, if not an appetite among some members. And then you have these other really serious structural problems with the House right now um, that Kevin McCarthy, who's been who had been negotiating with the White House on the debt deal, um, could face a motion to vacate as soon as next week, meaning there could be a vote of confidence against him. He could not be the speaker anymore next week. So are Democrats going to start to negotiate now with somebody who may not even represent his caucus this time next week? Um, Another problem is that um, the Republicans, since the last... um, negotiations with the debt ceiling have brought impeachment proceedings against President Biden. So any Democrats who might have been inclined to work with McCarthy the last time around are thinking, why am I going to help any of these people right now who are um, talking about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and impeachment proceedings? Um, It's really seems to have soured um, the atmosphere even further. And then the last thing is even these spending bills that have passed. Let's look at the DOD bill. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene included an amendment to pay the Secretary of Defense $1. Yeah. Okay, so that's the bill that did pass the House. That is going nowhere in the Senate, and Joe Biden is certainly not going to sign that. And Marjorie Taylor Greene has been appointed to the conference committee on some of these DOD um, procedural votes. So it, it, there is so much wrong right now with this, and it's not just the shutdown. The shutdown is almost the symptom of the problems. And until you solve the problems, you're not going to sh- solve the shutdown. Patricia, one of the things that I thought was fascinating is that this morning, uh, Karen Tumulty had a really interesting column uh, in the Washington Post. She calls uh, those far-right Republicans who are blocking progress agents of havoc. And she asked this question. She says, um, to whom are these agents of havoc actually accountable? And her answer is a surprisingly small sliver of voters uh, because of gerrymandering and uh, states across the country, for example. And and he, she has some really interesting data. She points out just it, it, taking two that we hear about uh, most often, our own Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, and Matt Gates, who's been one of the leaders of this effort to uh, dethrone McCarthy as speaker. And she points out that in their last primaries in 2022, only 17% of the voters in Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, district, Republican votes, actually cast ballots, which eventually put her back in the House. Same for Matt Gates. 17% participated in his primary election. So we're talking here about a very small number of people representing an even smaller, well, not smaller, but a t- terribly small percentage of the total population who are holding this whole thing up and leading us towards a potential government shutdown this weekend. Yeah, we are hurtling toward that likelihood very quickly here in Georgia. And we're going to have, and look, Tia, I mean, this is not just something that um, uh, that is just a Washington debate, right? I mean, we're talking about millions upon millions of, of workers who either could be furloughed, who, who essential workers who still must keep working, even if they're not getting uh, a paycheck, um, you know, 
parks closing, services being cut off, all sorts of real effects to real voters. Right. And we had in this morning's jolt that Congress members are aware of the perceptions that they're going to cause service members, I mean, service members to go without pay, um, other essential workers, while they still collect their paychecks as essential workers. So they've tried to file legislation to kind of reverse that, but it's not happening. So we're seeing people, Representative Rich McCormick among them, who's saying he won't take a paycheck during the shutdown. I'm sure there will be others. Um, but the optics, as we've talked about, don't look great for Congress in general, for Washington in general, but particularly for Republicans. Um, and the other thing, and I know we're running out of time, but previous shutdowns at least had an ideological center of them that people could agree or disagree with. This is the first shutdown in modern history that is about political um, chaos, essentially mm -hmm. the, the the Republicans in the House, the fractures within the party, not about one particular thing that they want to accomplish that the White House or the Senate is standing in the way of. Let's take a quick break. Still to come, birthday plans in Plains, Georgia. The AJC's Ernie Suggs has been in constant contact with Carter family and his friends and loved ones. He's going to join us when Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution continues. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You're three of your hosts, Tia Mitchell, Patricia Murphy, Greg Bluston, along with Bill Nygut. Three of us are also authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe ajc.com slash podcast so you always know what's really going on. Well, President Carter turns 99 years old on Sunday, six months after he chose to leave the hospital and enter home hospice. But plans for celebration in planes have been altered by the looming government shutdown. The AJC's Ernie Suggs, who's covered Jimmy Carter for years now, joins us to talk about everything that's happening as President Carter reaches age 99. Ernie, first, how have plans for the celebration changed? Well, you know, you guys have been talking about the government shutdown, the possibility of a government shutdown. So a lot of things like, you know, the, uh, the, the Jimmy Carter historical site is in Plains, Georgia, which is a government property. Uh, the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library in Atlanta uh, is also going to be impacted if there's a government shutdown. So they've made some kind of adjustments. But, uh, you know, I can tell you that the people in Plains and the people in Atlanta connected with the Carter Center, connected with the library, are very excited about what's going on. They're very excited that President Carter is uh, two days from reaching this landmark uh, birthday. So I think that they're going to celebrate regardless of what the government decides to do. And I think that's in Jimmy Carter's um, that's that's Jimmy Carter, you know, it's, it's to go on despite obstacles and this obstacle that the government may be placing upon the 39th president of the United States is just an obstacle. 
Ernie, I'll open up the rest of the panel for questions, but one, one other quick one. What have folks been telling you? You've been talking to his grandson, Jason Carter. You've been talking to Paige Alexander, the head of the Carter Center. What have folks been telling you about his mindset going into 99? Well, you know, as we age ourselves, I think all of us have faced or will face at some point our parents getting older, our parents getting sick, our parents poten potentially going into home hospice. As you all know, on February 18th, um, it was announced that he was going into home hospice. And a lot of people in this family, Jason Carter, uh, the CEO of the, I mean, I'm sorry, the chairman of the Carter Center's board, as well as the first grandchild, uh, thought that it was going to be five to seven days that, you know, within five to seven days, the President Carter would be, would, would not be uh, with us anymore. Paige Alexander, the CEO of the Carter Center, felt the same way. They were talking about changing plans, even buying clothes and getting their clothes together for, together for funerals. But here we are seven months later, and the President Carter is still around. So I think that's a testament I put in my story, a testament to his faith, but also kind of a testament to his country's stubbornness. You know, he's a guy who, um, who in 2015 predicted that he would be dead from brain cancer, and he survived that. Um, here's a guy who... Um, who has faced a lot of challenges in his life, and he's done it through faith. So I think that this right here is just another example of faith getting someone through. And also just kind of a technical scientific point of view, a medical point of view, hospice is not what we always think it is, right? You know, a lot of times people can go into hospice, they can stay for, you know, two weeks, they can stay for a year. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday whose mother is in hospice and whose mother's been in hospice for eight months now. So I think it kind of varies by who you are, what you are, and just what that strength in your intestinal fortitude is and when it's time for you to go. And I think that President Carter understands when it is time for him to go and what his mission on earth is. And his faith has carried him to the point where he can understand when it's time for him to go. Ernie, I think much of our audience may not know how long you have been covering President Carter. You have covered the Carter's marriage. You have covered the Carter Center. You've covered so much about um, his post-presidency. Um, how long have you been covering him? And how did you get on this beat? I mean, to me, it's like the coolest thing to have gotten so close <laughs> to the Carters as you have. It's such, an un it's such a unique relationship. And you bring so much of that to all of the stories that you've written about him. Well, it's it's kind of one of those things I've been at the paper, I guess, longer than all of you guys combined, probably. But <laughs> it's it's one of those things where you kind of fall into something and it's just like your turn. And basically, the other reporter who was covering Jimmy Carter from when I started at the paper retired. So I was kind of that person who was kind of floating around. And I guess they think I, they thought I needed to have something to do. I also <laughs> enjoyed a long relationship with President Carter even before I started covering him full time. So I knew about Carter. I knew about the Carter Center. I was covering the Carter Center in, a, in, in some ways. So once that other reporter retired, I kind of became the full-time person. And, you know, Plains is like my second favorite place. I'm down there all the time. You know, one of the things that I was really struck by in such a lovely way, Greg, I think you and I were together when we talked to Paige Alexander. We ran into her out front of the Carter Center mm -hmm. uh, a few weeks ago. And one of the things, and Ernie, you can speak to this, I imagine, he, he says that the Carters still kind of sit together. And, and although we know Mrs. Carter is struggling right now with dementia, but um, that they still sit and hold hands after all of these years together. And Ernie, that is just an image that is so, so completely endearing. And, and it's completely true and it's completely honest and, and sincere. You know, they've been married for 77 years, which, 
you know, the census doesn't even count. They, they don't even track that anymore. Um, so, you know, they <laughs> – so they basically sit down. They watch Atlanta Braves games. You know, they watch Ronald Acuna. They eat that fantastic peanut butter ice cream or peanut ice cream uh, pretty much every day. So they're just you – know, and I talk to family members. It's like, you know, they've been traveling so much. they worked so much. They've done all this stuff, and they've always done stuff together. But now as they enter this twilight time, they're spending this quality time of just them, just them together, being, uh, being together, and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Ernie, I was struck by the article you wrote um, – that Senator Warnock made a trip to Plains. Can you talk a little bit about Senator Warnock's visit and and what that entailed? Sure. Well, you know the Carters are members of Maranatha Baptist Church, which they attend online every week, but they also attend Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, the home church of obviously Martin Luther King Jr., but also the home pastoral home of Senator Reverend Warnock, or as I describe him in my story, Reverend um, Raphael Warnock, because you know, he's a reverend. Uh, so he uh, he had a day off basically from preaching on on a Sunday and he called Jason and said, hey, I'd like to go down to Plains and sit with your family. So he went to Plains. He and Jason drove down to Plains. Uh, they read the Bible. They read some scripture. They prayed and they just had this kind of beautiful pastoral moment where a pastor, you know, he's not their official pastor like at Maranatha, but where as a pastor who comes down not to talk about politics, not as Senator Warnock, but as a man of God to say, hey, I want to be with the Carters in this moment. And the Carters are obviously very receptive of it. They engaged in the conversation, they engaged in the scripture reading, they engaged in the readings. And it was just one, as Jason Carter said, it was just a beautiful moment of watching a pastor do his work as well as watching a congregation or, um, yeah, watching a congregation accept that work and accept what those words mean and, and what they say. Um, Ernie, uh, one thing that Paige Alexander, the Carter Center's chief executive, told Bill and I and also told you was that when she last talked to the former president, he didn't want to talk about politics or anything else. What he really wanted to talk about was the latest guinea worm count. This has been part of his lifelong mission to eradicate these horrible illnesses that are still plaguing certain parts of the world. He's so close. You know, the guinea worm count is, is down... Uh, almost eradicated, but it, it has been his goal to see the end of that horrible disease. Yeah, just to put it into perspective for your listeners, when they started this eradication process, there were 3.5 million people who suffered from guinea worm at some point in 21 countries. Now it's down to six people in two countries. So it's almost there. Now, you know, six sounds like a small number, but that still is going to take about two or three years to finally get eradicated. So that's the kind of stuff he wants to talk about. He wanted to get that done. And Paige Alexander said, you know, he wanted to see that eradicated before his, his passing. Hopefully that will be still the case. But it's down to six, and that's the kind of stuff that he wants to talk about. That's the kind of, you know, I, I, I don't want to dominate your show. <laughs> no, but go for it. But, you know, I think that when you look at President Carter, he's, he's going to be 99 years old. He was president for four years. And... That's a big thing. That's a big accomplishment. But he has done so much more in the other 96 years. I'm, I'm bad at math. He's done so much more in the other 95 years of his life that I think even he thinks that as, as bad as he was, or I'm, I'm saying bad meaning, bad meaning good, as great as he was as a president and how big of an achievement that was, I think that in his mind, what he's done at the Carter Center, what he's done to eradicate diseases, what he's done to monitor elections, what he's done to be a regular citizen 
in Plains, Georgia means a lot much more to him. So he doesn't want to talk about politics. He wants to talk about guinea worms. Ernie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we have been following all your coverage. We'll continue to follow all of our coverage. And please don't be a stranger to the show. Please come back. We love hey. having you. Well, let's go to one of our favorite segments of the week. You can now call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Producer Shani B, we probably got 50 calls this week, but we only have time for one. So what's the best one we've got? We did, but we've got to introduce the listener mailbag. Ah, now it's official. Now it's a vision. Now we can get down to business. Uh, let's take a great call from Joan in Atlanta. She has a question about polls. I am looking at the snapshots of polls and wondering if we could get a drill down on more information on those polls, particularly what the tabs mean. Uh, the headlines are a little bit scary. Thanks much. Because the question was about crosstabs and polls, which are one of the most important things, probably the most important thing to look at when you look at polls is what are the crosstabs saying? That's when you look at certain demographics, when you look at voting blocks. You know, it's one thing to say Donald Trump is up 57% in Georgia, as our last poll did, but it's another when you drill down, okay, that's 57% among likely Republican voters, not among all voters. And, you know, you look at polls have age demographic breakdowns, age uh, age demographic breakdowns. Uh, education breakdowns. So all these are really instrumental in learning how to read a poll um, and understand what it really means. But of course, polls are just a snapshot. They don't give you a a, a firm, everlasting look at the electorate. They just give you a glimpse in time of where the electorate is. You always take them with a grain of salt. You know, Um, There are polls that show, as time goes on, polls start to show a certain trend going on. There's outliers, there's there's polls that kind of reflect other polls, but they give you a glimpse, but it's not something you kind of live and breathe by, guys, right? I think you said it all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, now it is time for our favorite segment of the week. We are running short on time, but we're still going to get to it. Who's up and who's down? We always like to end on a high note. So, Bill Nygut, who's your who's down for the week? Well, I... I feel terrible going first because Patricia Murphy is going to end up following me, but I'm going to say that who's down are every one of the seven candidates for GOP nomination for president who were on the stage Wednesday night because not one of them uh, made the case for why they should be elected uh, president or certainly win the GOP nomination rather than Donald Trump. And time is running out for all of them, even Patricia, I'm sorry, Nikki Haley, who I think has been doing a pretty good job too. Trisha, you're who's down? <laughs> oh, Bill, I have no investment in Nikki Haley's future, so I, <laughs> she could completely be your who's down. My who's down are TSA agents at the airport and the flying public, because if there is a shutdown, TSA agents are going to have to start working without pay. Um, they will still be required to go in, but they're not going to get paid to do it. The last time that happened, TSA agents eventually needed to call in sick and take other jobs just to pay their own bills and the lines at the TSA um, checkpoints were epic and that is the reason the last shutdown um, wrapped up so it it looks like we're in for a bumpy flight on this one Tia you're who's down yeah I was I'll make it short because I agree it's all the federal workers 
um, who either will either be sent home or required to come to work, but not be paid for it. And all the people who are going to need the services and uh, get longer wait times or be told they're going to not be able to access certain things during the shutdown. My who's down is state Senator Colt Moore, who is removed or suspended, I should say, from the Republican Senate caucus for carrying on a sort of fantasy about impeaching Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and his calls and his and his calling out his colleagues have led to threats against them and all sorts of disorder in the Georgia Senate. Bill, who's your who's up for the week? My who's up is Steve Sadow, who, of course, is Trump's attorney in the Fulton County election conspiracy case. And here's why. While Donald Trump continues to attack all of the judges, all of the prosecutors who have been involved in cases that he is now trying to defend against, Sadow uh, said in saying that they were going to accept the trial will be in Fulton County, he used his time to butter up Judge McAfee. He said that uh, Trump based the decision, quote, on his well-founded confidence that this honorable court intends to fully and completely protect his constitutional right to a fair uh, trial. Judge McAfee, he's talking about you. (laughs) Patricia? (laughs) My who's up is California Governor Gavin Newsom. He somehow convinced Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to debate him (laughs) in Georgia. (laughs) So that is now on the books. Also, with this sad news about Dianne Feinstein, um, that puts Gavin Newsom in a point of immense power to appoint the next senator from California. He'll also get loads of national press attention while it happens. And those uh, uh, being in the national press is exactly where he wants to be right now. So he's my who's up. My who's up, you're going to love this, Greg, are the amazing student journalists at the Red and Black student newspaper at the University of Georgia. Uh, Their recent edition had this really engaging front page article um, about campus shootings and the impact of campus carry. And um, not only was it this, uh, again, really interesting article, but a really engaging front page design. Um, The fact that these are young journalists putting out amazing journalism. I just want to give the red and black huge kudos. My alma mater, you stole mine. I'm going to go a little cheesy then. No, that's perfectly fine. I'm going to go with my daughter, Brooke, who hosts her own podcast. She's nine years old in fourth grade. And she had the chance to interview the great author and former Miami Herald columnist, Carl Hyacin. A great interview. I learned a ton from it. It was 15 minutes. And I'm so proud of her. We're all so proud of Little Brookie, who is her own podcast host, JDB. Anyone can do it now, I guess. You're gonna, have a, you're gonna be a lot busier if anyone, if fourth graders, can now do podcasts. You know what? I think we're gonna hire Brooke. <laughs> I, we, would, I would do that. I would co-sign that. That's amazing. I like we, that. We, Good experience. We need some extra staffers here. Well, folks, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of this podcast. We release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday or whenever big news breaks. And pretty soon, every weekday, W-A-B-E, every morning, 10 a.m. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. 
Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,